0: Amen. And you may be seated. Well, last week we began to talk about this idea of good weakness. And again, that's really hard for us to understand. It sounds strange because it's hard to believe that weakness of any kind can ever be good. But when it comes to a relationship with God, it it, it is good. It's actually great. When, When you and I come to the point that we realize that apart from God we can do nothing, that we come to realize that we can't save ourselves, we can't help ourselves, that that we can't change ourselves. And all of that is reliant upon God and God himself. It's the exact place that God wants us to be. Because when we get to that place... God has a tendency of intervening, of showing up, of showing out, and doing something in us and through us that only he and he alone can get the glory, all right? That's what we saw last week with, with Gideon and his, and his 300 men. And, and so this was all good stuff, good, uh, a good weakness to have that God would want us to have. Now when we're getting into chapter 8, we're going to see just the opposite, We're going to go from a good weakness to a bad weakness. Where a good weakness really focuses everything upon God, a bad weakness has a tendency of focusing everything on us. Uh, A good weakness really does everything it can to ascribe glory to God. A bad weakness is when we begin to do everything we can to share in the glory of God, to take or to steal His glory. Uh, The primary characteristic of a good weakness is humility. Whereas the primary characteristic of, uh, of really a bad weakness would be pride. Now, here's what's been happening, just to catch you up in the last three weeks. What, what's been happening in chapters 6 and 7 and now in chapter 8 is that there's a man by the name of Gideon who is pursuing after God. His desire is to do the will of, to do the will of God for the glory of God. That's, that's all that he wants to be able to do. But along the way, there's many obstacle that he has to overcome to continue to seek after God, to continue to do his will, to continue to do the, it for the glory of God. And we've seen one right after another. Now in chapter 8, we're going to see the greatest obstacle that he has to confront to date. And the greatest obstacle to your and mine in, in Gideon's pursuit after God to do to the will of God for the glory of God is pride. Pride is our greatest obstacle obstacle in pursuing of God in the doing of his will. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see this pride, and we're going to see two aspects of this pride that seems to be so dangerous, poses such a great obstacle of danger for every true believer. There's two types. First of all, we see the pride of others. The pride of others... Can keep you and I, and can distract us from working and pursuing God into living for His glory. You'll remember uh, last week, we last time we met, we saw Gideon and his three hundred men, and they were surrounding the armies of uh, of uh, the um, Midianites. And as they surround them, they they begin to do some kind of strange things. They all played trumpets. Remember this? They played trumpets. They lit torches, uh, they, they smashed jars, uh, they shouted, uh, and they all stood in their place that was ascribed to them. Not a whole lot to write home about, not a whole lot to be proud in, but God uses these little feeble acts of theirs, and he uses it in a supernatural way. He uses it to really stir up confusion and chaos, in the Midianites, and then instead of having to fight them, they begin to fight themselves. They begin to cut each other down with swords. And the majority of them, 120,000 of them, are killed at that particular point. And and some of them end up escaping. And what we read at the end of chapter 7 is that Gideon and and his 300 men begin to pursue those who survived. And they're making their way towards the Jordan. And he's afraid if they get over the Jordan, they're going to be able to escape. So Gideon sends word to the men of the tribe of Ephraim. And he tells them, we read this in verses 24 and 25 at the end of chapter 7. And what he says is, he says, listen, they're, they're coming your way. Head them off and don't let them cross in essence. And we read that that's exactly what they do. So the men of Ephraim go, they go into battle and they have some great success and victory. They're able to capture two of the kings and they eventually kill them. But when we get to chapter 8 and verse 1, there's a problem. There's an obstacle brewing for Gideon. And the, what's brewing is a group of arrogant men. Now, look at verse 1, what it says. These men are infuriated at, at, at um, Gideon. The Bible says in verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went, uh, went, went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. All right, now, what put a bee in their bonnet? Why are they so crotchety okay why are they so angry what did Gideon possibly do to understand that you've got to understand what type of men we're dealing with Uh, these men of of Ephraim were full of pride they were a bunch of prima donnas Uh, they were a part of a tribe that was one of the most influential of the 12 tribes of Israel Uh, they had it all together they were strong financially they were strong militarily uh, they boasted in a great history. Uh, they, they, they boasted in the fact that Joshua, one of the greatest leaders of their time, uh, was a part of their tribe. So they had a lot of boast. Let me put it this way. These guys knew nothing about dealing with low self-esteem, okay? They knew nothing about it. They were confident in themselves, and they're angry. Now, why specifically are these arrogant men angry at Gideon? Well, they say the reason that they're angry is because they didn't receive a call. Nobody called them, okay? And, and you're like, well, what, what? yeah, I know. We're, we're going to get there in just a minute. Um, I laughed, too, when I first read it. I was like, oh, sounds familiar. Um, um, but what ha- Two of you get it, the rest don't. Okay, so, so what happens here is this is, is that they go, you didn't call us, you didn't include us in this. When you decided to go into battle, nobody called us and asked us to be a part of this whole thing. Now, it sounds like they're angry because they weren't called and included in the battle, but that's not really why they're angry. The real reason that they're so angry is because they missed out on an opportunity of a victory that they knew would ultimately give them, guess what, props and glory. They hate the fact that they missed out on something that would have brought them glory. Now, what's interesting about this is, in light of what we saw last week, this is very ironic. Because in chapter 7 and verse 2, this is the very reason God said that he had taken a large army of 32,000 people in in Gideon's army and dwindled dwindled it down to 300. Why? Because God understood the sinful propensity of you and I and of all sinful mankind for us to want to steal the glory from God. And now we see even more evidence of it. Now we see why God dwindled it down because we see man's propensity. These guys wanted to share. In the glory of God, and they were angry that they didn't get the opportunity to be able to do it. Now, notice how Gideon had to deal with such people. He had to stroke their ego to keep them from coming unglued. Do you know anyone like that? I mean, you're walking around on eggshells the whole time, right? You're afraid. You're like, man, just don't say anything to them. We don't know how they are. And there's somebody in the office. Maybe there's somebody, maybe it's the husband that comes home, and you're like, kids, just shut up. Don't say a word. All right, don't say a word. Let's see what kind of mood they're in, right? And well, well here's what he has to do. He comes up with the, to these men and, and he has to kind of strike their ego. He says in verse two, and he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim, that's their tribe, better than the grape harvest of Abiazar, my pathetic little weak little clan? Aren't you so much better than me? And now notice this. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. He goes, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Now note this. Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Do you see how full of themselves they are? These guys are arrogant. They are full of themselves. They think it's all about them. And, and, and Gideon understood how they, how they worked. In order for them to, be, to, to calm down, he had to give them what they truly wanted. What did they want? They wanted glory. They wanted fame. They wanted praise. They were arrogant men. This was an obstacle for Gideon to continue to do the will of God for the glory of God. But he not only has to deal with the arrogant, but he also has to deal with the apathetic. Now, now notice, if you will, beginning in verse 4. Uh, the Bible tells us that, that Gideon and three of his men continue to pursue after the Midianites, all right? So they're chasing after them. still more men to be able to get, more kings to be able to kill. And, and, and so he comes across the people of Sokoth, uh, and, and so, or Sokoth. And so when he sees this group of people, he asks them, he says, listen, you know, we've been chasing these guys for a while, been fighting them, and, and we're hungry. There's a tendency for when you run, for you to become hungry. And so they're, they're hungry, they want to eat, and they go, hey man, if you don't mind, can we just have some bread? Now, now understand something, before I read the next verse, verse six, understand that, that Gideon and the men are fighting on their behalf not just for themselves, but for all of Israel, all of God's people, they're fighting on their behalf. So they're saying, hey, listen, we're doing this for you. Do you mind helping out and giving us just a little bit of bread? Verse six, we see their response. Notice this. And the officials of Sokoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmanah already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Here's what he's saying. Gideon, I got news for you, bro. Uh, You haven't won the battle yet. You haven't gotten the victory yet. Uh, you, You haven't killed those kings of the Midianites. And so until you do, we're not going to help until you have the final victory. Why would they do that? Well, they're doing that because they're afraid if they help him... Then in Midian ends up defeating Gideon. Then then the Midianites are going to come after them and wipe them out, destroy them in retaliation. So they don't want to have any part of any of this battle mess. Now Gideon doesn't take this very well at all. Let's 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 let's. Know. Some people take it a little bit better than others. He doesn't take this well. Verse seven it says, "Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand." I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars, all right? He probably wouldn't make it long as a pastor, all right? He doesn't have, a, I mean, he's, he's got to learn a little bit. That would be a little bit like me saying, hey, guys, listen, um, I, I'm in the back. Say in the morning, right before y'all came and before y'all rushed in uh, at the last moment. And, and say my wife was sick, and none of the workers came into the nursery, and I was back there. And I'm trying to be in two places at once. And I see y'all walking down the hall, and I go, "Hey, do you think you could help out just for a minute with 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 the with the babies just for a moment? I got to get in there, man. I got to go to war. Got got to go and preach. Do you mind just handling this for me just real quick? And you sitting there go, "No." I. I'm sorry. I I can't do that. You know, too many diapers, too much stinky, uh, too much whining. Can't handle each one of those. I'm sorry. And then I sit there and say, that's fine. Not a problem. But I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to preach. And when I come back, I'm going to have a handful of Florida Sandspurs, and I'm going to beat you down with it, all right? That wouldn't go over well with you. You can't imagine that it was probably going over very well with the people, this apathetic group that he's talking to. Now, Penwell did the same thing. He, uh, he, he leaves them, he goes to the next group of people, people of Penwell. He asks them for bread, they say no. And this time he says, not only am I gonna beat you down with Florida Sandspurs, but I'm also gonna come and I'm gonna tear down your tower. Now let's make sure we understand very clearly what's happening here in the text. What's happening is you have a man of God Who is seeking to do what it was clearly that God had called him to do. He wants to do the will of God. And he wants to do it so far for what? For the glory of God. Not his own fame, but for the glory of God. But it's very hard to do because of his own people. And that's what I want you to gather. It's not people out there. It's not people out there. It's the people in here that are causing him an obstacle to pursue after God. God, are are you guys catching what's going on here? And so so, so the the, the problem for us, you say, what does it have to do with us? The problem is we still face the same obstacles. We still face the same difficulties. Some of the biggest frustrations that God's people have in pursuing God for the glory of God is not people out there, but our people in here. Are people in the church? Are you, are you guys with me on this? There are, there are people that you find that are going to be arrogant within God's church. They're going to be arrogant. Uh, there are people that think all of this, all of this, all that's going on today is about them. And in, in And in, in how we know that and what gives that away is because they, they feel free and have the right to openly complain about everything right? You got that, right? Uh, we don't like the music. We don't like the voices. We don't like the carpet. We don't like the dress. We don't like that that crazy jacket that the pastor has on. I'm just cold. That's it. All right. All right. Oh, we, we don't like the, We don't like the sermons that are being preached. We don't like the color of the carpet. Are you guys with me? So what's happening is, by them saying, hey, I have a right to complain about everything that's going on What they're in essence saying is in pride is, the reason I have that right is because all of this is about me, and it's about my approval, and it's for me. Do Do you see the arrogance in that? And so when we complain, that's what we find, and yet we find oftentimes a church that is filled with this type of arrogance. They feel free to complain. And, and it's ironic that, didn't you notice that and some of you begin to laugh. It's ironic that the way that the people from Ephraim demonstrated their arrogant pride is complaining that Gideon didn't call them. Okay, now some of you are going to get this now. This is kind of how this looks. People come in and they serve and they work. And, and, and I hear this testimony from folks from other churches all the time. And I'm sure other pastors hear churches this, the same thing. People come and they'll go, well, listen, I served like crazy at that church. I was out for two weeks and nobody called. I mean, do you see the same thing? And nobody called. What, what, what are they? Some of you don't find that humorous. I find it incredibly humorous. Because I've heard it, somebody said, I did it, but yet nobody called. What are they saying? They're full of pride. What they're saying is, this is all about me. I'm willing to be able to work. I'm willing to be able to serve as long as I have some kind of praise, glory, and recognition for what it is that I'm doing. And if I don't get it, guess what? You're in trouble. You're in trouble. So here's the arrogance that, that, that people within the church have to have to deal with all the time. Look, It's not just for pastors, it's for everyone. There you are working your finger to the bone, right? And then you're you're just so busy, you're just doing your thing. And then somebody sits there and you're like, what's wrong with you? Well, nobody called me for three weeks. Well, where where are you for three weeks? Well, I just wanted to know if anybody cared and if anybody was going to call. You were out waiting. Why weren't you here, right? I mean, why didn't you come and work? You could have helped me in all of this. That's something that could really be... An obstacle in, in, in your faith. Now, there's not only the arrogant, but there's but there's also the apathetic. The apathetic is interesting, you know. Whereas Ephraim, uh, the people from Ephraim, were angry that the call came too late. This group didn't want to call at all. Uh, the, you know, the, Ephraim's like, "You didn't call us early enough for us to be able to come and help." This group's like, "Hey, we don't want you calling at all for our help." Do you see how this th- this works? And, and, and he says, he he says, and I got to listen. I just got to tell you my experience of being in church. We just celebrated 10 years last week and thank you so much for the cards and everything. The church was incredibly gracious. And and what's interesting is over all the years that I've been in church work, um, the whole church can be kind of divided up, I think, into kind of two groups, givers and takers, givers and takers. It's almost impossible to get the givers to take and it is absolutely impossible to get the takers to give. It's it's what I've learned for twenty years of men. You say, why are you bringing this up? Because it's in the text. This is exactly what Gideon is struggling with, right? So I mean, so don't get angry with me. This is this is where this this text is ultimately leading us. And and, and so this is what's interesting. This group of people they're enjoying the success, the hard work, and labor of Gideon and his men. But when it came to them taking part, they wanted nothing of it. They wanted to take part in the reward but wanted nothing to do with the sacrifice. And so here's what's interesting. Again, there's givers and there's takers. And one of the things I've found with givers is sometimes you have to kind of chastise them a little bit and rebuke them a little bit because sometimes those givers, they give so much that they actually need to be given to. I mean, there are people that even in this room that I've had to go to and go, hey, listen, we love you and thank you for your service. But right now, you're the one who's in need. Let us bless you. let us help you. Does that make sense? But on the other side, on the other hand, it amazes me how many people can come to any church week after week, month after month, year after year, and enjoy the benefits of that local community in that local church, but let not give any energy, effort, talents or finances to be able to help and to be a part of what God is doing that. It's just simply amazing. Now, how do we deal with such arrogant and apathetic people? Because that's what he's trying to tell us. Hey, this is an obstacle. He's trying to let us, what do we do with it when we see it? Well, according to, 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 to Gideon, uh, we should beat him down. All right, so that's what he does. That's his way of dealing with this. Just find the arrogant, find whatever. Unfortunately, it'd be all of us getting beat down, right? And so uh, he he just gets them together and he beats them down. Verse 16, it says, and he took the elders of the city and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. He goes, and with them taught the men of Sokoth a lesson. He taught him, I'm going to teach you a lesson, right? All right? And he comes back, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And he broke down the tower in Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. Now, fortunately, some of you get to understand the statement, some of you aren't. Fortunately, now is the time that you really need to be grateful that our church holds to a sound hermeneutic. Okay, now what I mean by that is that we know how or we attempt to be able to interpret Scripture correctly. So we're able to go to a passage like this where the spiritual leader beats people with sandspurs, all right, and, and tears down their houses and kills them. And when we come to the text, we understand that the, the point of this text is not to be prescriptive. You got that? In other words, it's not telling us that this is how we should deal with arrogant uh, people. It gets, instead, it's descriptive. This is something that Gideon is doing. It's not something that we should be doing. Make, make sense? So what we're doing is we're finding this out Gideon what we actually find with Gideon is that that Gideon is struggling the reason that he's responding out and the reason that he's acting this way is because he's allowing those who are negative, those who are difficult, those who are hard against him, it's affecting him, it's impacting him, it's keeping him from doing the will of God. He's becoming frustrated. I don't think the word of God at all, uh, and this is my, not my intention, to begin to speak about uh, those that are arrogant and to begin to speak about those who are... are, 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 are um, um, uh, apathetic I, I don't think that's it and, and here's been my take on this one of the reasons is because I found that it really does no no good because the innocent just feel guilty and the guilty just end up feeling innocent in other words if I were to get up this morning and say you know what some of you are just full of yourselves you think it, it's all about you then those that are truly humble of heart they just feel worse and worse and worse about themselves pastor I'm so sorry we talk about apathetic, and then those who are really serving and giving their all sit back and go, Brother Pastor, I'm so sorry. And then, But those who are perhaps guilty of those things, they keep on, guess what, being arrogant and apathetic. They, it, it doesn't change them at all. So I see that really trying to give a beat down in that area doesn't help at all. But listen, here's the point of the text. The point of the text is not to encourage the arrogant and the apathetic. It's to encourage those who are seeking to do the will of God who are getting shipwrecked and off course because of the arrogant and the apathetic around them. It's one of the most difficult things for me to see young believers when they come to faith in Christ, and I love to be around young believers because it it, it, it just shows and it reminds me of how my heart should be. They're so in love with God. They're so in love with all that God has done for them. There's such a clear understanding for them of the mercy of God and of the grace of God in their life. and and they love it, and they're just excited to learn the word, and they're excited to tell people about Jesus, and they're excited to be able to serve, but one of the hardest things that I have to navigate them through is arrogant and apathetic believers. When they sit back, and and you're trying to lead them to Christ, and and, and they're following after him, and they're working so hard, and then they come back, and they say, Brother Mike, why isn't other people involved in the study of the word or the propagation of the gospel, or why why aren't they a part of Bible study, or why aren't they a part of serving? How do you do that? And what I have to do is I have to sit there and go, bro, don't even focus on it. Don't even focus on it. Let me just tell you this. If you're struggling and you find yourself sometimes getting wrapped up in that, don't get wrapped up in Gideon. It's not for you to beat down anybody else, not for you to get on anybody else. It's for you to continue to seek to do the will of God, to do the will of God. Just don't be distracted by it. I think that's the point. So we can very easily be distracted from doing the will of God for the glory of God by the pride of others. But notice this, we can also be distracted by the pride of our own. I said just a moment ago that the biggest obstacle to date for Gideon was really the pride of others, the arrogant and the apathetic. But the truth of the matter is the greatest obstacle for all of us is not the pride of other people, it's the pride of ourselves, And so we see that here in the text. Notice verse 22. Look all the way down to chapter uh, 8 and verse 22. He says, And the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. All right, so what's going on here? They want a king. Uh, God had not allowed them. God's plan for them had never been to have a human king. That was never his perfect plan for them. Why? Because he was their king. He didn't want them to look and to place their faith in any man. He wanted them their, their faith to be placed in God alone. doesn't mean that he doesn't have leaders, but there should be one king. That was God's plan for them. And that's what distinguished them from all the other nations. Now, the question is, what's their motivation behind asking Gideon to become king and then have a lineage of kings, including his son, after him? Well, we could say that it could be that, that they lost focus of where the glory belonged, that, that, that the glory, that they forgot that it was God who actually gave them the victory, and now they're giving way too much credit to this man. So they may have lost focus for that. It, but, but it could have been from the right reasons. And what I mean by the right reasons, at least some right motivation, it could have been just out of their affection for Gideon of a man who had delivered and spiritually been a spiritual leader to them. Uh, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to express appreciation and, and acknowledge that for people in our life, whether Sunday school teacher, a husband, wife, a child, whoever it is that's, that's helping us spiritually, it can be a healthy thing to be able to recognize them. But here's the idea. Whatever the motivation is, it was wrong that they did it. And again, the reason that it was wrong that was did it, because this was not God's plan. God's plan was for them to have one god, one king, and that was for him to reign to rule over them. So when the people choose to get a king of themselves and ask him to be a king for themselves, the problem is it's another form of their uh, of their idolatry. Instead of trusting in God, they want to trust in a man. That's why they're doing it. Now give props to Gideon. This is a lot of temptation, is it not? Hey, be our king. Well, um, let me think about that, right? And what does he say? He says, Listen, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. And he says, The Lord will rule over you. Give him some props. He's doing exactly what a leader ought to be doing. He says, Listen, you can follow me, but only follow me as I follow God. That's it. But then something crazy happens in the very next verse. From chapter 23, or verse 23, where he gets it all right, it immediately goes wrong really quick in verse 24. Follow along with me. And Gideon said to them, he says, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me earrings from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they, and they spread a cloak and every man threw in his, his earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Or that's 4,250 ounces of gold. This is what he requested of them. All right. So beside, he says, besides the, the 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 crescent ornaments and the pendants and the the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. So he's not asking much, right? He's asking a ton. Now here's what's weird. What's weird is in one moment he is saying only God deserves the glory. Uh, then in this, for the battle and what God has done. In the very next moment, he's demanding of the people appreciation and an award to himself. Something's off here. He says that there should be only one king, but what is he doing? Now he is leading and acting like a king, telling them that they should bring tribute to him. It gets even worse. You look at verse 29, and we see him acting even more like a king. He, he has 70 sons. All right, so all, Matt, you've got nothing on this man, all right? You and your eight, just go home, not yet, but after the service, go home after the service and think on this, all right? Think you're big and bad, 70 sons, all right? But now, given he had many wives, all right, so... Don't know what to make of that. But he also had a concubine, all right? So concubines are known for kings having many wives. They're having many sons to be able to come and to be able to have the throne is to secure the kingdom. And then he has a concubine and he has a son of the concubine and and notice this, his name is Abimelech, which means nothing except for the fact that when you translate that, it means my father is king. He names his son, my father is king. Okay, something's jacked up here. Are Are you with me? No, there's only one to rule give me your money. Hey, my son is the king. Come here, right? I mean, he's, you know, you, you got this. I'm not the king. He's acting as king, but he does even more than that. He even begins to act as priest. Look at verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it into the city in, in Orpha, or uh, Ophrah. And he says, all the people hoard after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, what's, what's going on here? What's this ephod that he's talking about? And ephod was an outer garment, basically, of the priest. He would wear uh, over all his other garments. And attached to it would be a, pre- uh, a breastplate. And on that breastplate would be 12 stones, all representing one of the different 12 tribes of Israel. But there would also be this pocket in this ephod. And in this pocket would be uh, a, a white stone and uh, a black stone. And this was the Urim and the Thummim, okay? If we have twins, I'm going to name them that, Urim and Thummim. Um, I just thought that would be interesting. Uh, Some of you look aghast. But anyway, I I won't do that. Uh, But Urim and Thummim, and and really what those were is it was a divine way that God had given to his people and his high priest to determine the will of God. So he actually gave him the Urim and Thummim, and it would work somehow where they would throw it out. And somehow, by the way that they would land, it would determine whether God was saying yes, no, or Wait. That type of thing, you know, to, to the will of God. So, this was a divine marker. So, what he does now, check this this was to be given to the priests, and it was only to be worn in the tabernacle. They don't have the temple yet. They're traveling around, they're in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, tabernacle represented the presence of God, the ephod represented the wisdom of God. You'd go and be in the presence of God as you were seeking the wisdom of God. So, what is Gideon doing by making his own ephod? So he makes his own ephod and he brings it to his own town and basically he creates his own tabernacle. So what is he ultimately doing? He's acting as the high priest for the people when he's not the high priest for the people. He's letting them know, hey, you want to be close to God, come close to me. He's saying, if you want direction and the wisdom of God, then come and seek it to me. He's telling them to do something opposite that God had divinely told them and, 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 and written and instructed them to be able to do. He's actually setting himself up as a rival against God. How does, how does he get here? How does this happen? I mean, how, how do you find a guy who, is, who yells out to everybody, hey, I can't be your king because you only have one king, and the next thing you know, he's acting like a king and priest, and now he's a rival against God. How do we get there? Well, pride. But how does that, how does that pride culminate in us? Two things. I'm going to close with this. First of all, there's a failure to know in our heart what we know in our head. He knew in his head what was right. He knew that there should only be one God. There should only be one king and he knew who that king was and he recognized that king but he had a hard time putting that into reality. He had a hard time taking from what was in his mind and making it a reality in his heart. Anybody recognize that? It's amazing when you go to seminary or do your doctoral work or whatever it is, you have all these guys and they're all working out their all theology and they're writing all these papers and and still the professors are constantly saying, you are in grave danger of becoming big headed and empty hearted. He says, you know your theology, but you haven't applied the theology to your life. It's it's what James cries out about, right? James sits there, he says, do not deceive yourselves. He says, be a doer of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. This man was deceiving himself. When you put your head full of knowledge, the danger is you think you are something that you're not. You think because you know the truth that that's equal or similar or on par with actually doing what God has called you to do. Here's a man who knows that God is to be king at all, but he's completely not living in consistency with it. I'll have folks from time to time who, who will say something like, hey, hey, hey man, appreciate that message. I've heard it before. In fact, that was probably the fifth best message I've ever heard on it. That, which really makes you feel good. You know, fifth, really? That, that's great. How many messages have you heard on it? Five. Okay, great. Um, but, but here's what happens is, is when they say that, what I want to say in return is my job on Sunday morning, pl- please understand this, is not to teach you something that you've never learned before. It's not what I'm looking for week after week after week. What I'm looking for is to say the same thing that you've hopefully heard time and time and time and time again. But what we're moving for is for that truth in your head to finally sink in your heart and make a difference in a reality in the way that you're living before God. Second thing that happens, not only is a failure to know in our heart what we know in our head, but there's a forgetting where we came from and what God has done. Here's Mr. Big Britches. I want 1,700 shekels of gold. I want four thousand two hundred and fifty ounces of gold. I want the even the camels had necklaces. I want the camels' necklaces. I want lots of wives. I want lots of sons. I want people when they call out the name of my son to remind me of uh, of the kings. Why did he get mad at those people? This is what I find. I know as a, in my own walk. When I get mad at other people because of their pride, I'm only getting angry because of my own pride. When I'm lashing out, it's just illustrating the own pride. I mean, how did this man come to where he was? How does he, be, how does he go from a man who is sucking his thumb in the fetal position in chapter 6, scared to death that he's not going to have enough food to be able to eat? He's a beggar of God. He's afraid that the Midianites are going to come and kill him. And God, by his grace, sees him as what? A mighty man of valor. How does that wretched, pathetic, weak man go around whipping people with sandspurs? How, how does that happen? He forgot where he's from. You know what I think happened? I think he became a victim of his own success. I think as he began to become victorious by the power of God, he began, listen to this very carefully, he became confused on the, the victory of God and his own success, and there's a huge difference between the two. When we look at it as our our success and look at what we've accomplished, that's where the pride really, really begins to build. When we have an understanding that whatever it is that we've accomplished is ultimately the victory of God, then the glory of God is forever going to be given and ascribed to him. Are are, are you with me on this? He goes so far from where it was, he forgot where he was before God saved him. And what I'm trying to say to you today is it's the same thing. When you and I are arrogant, when, when, when we're apathetic, all of it has to do with pride. When we think all this is about us, or we think people are there to be able to serve us, or we think that our opinions are what really matters, or when we begin to look at other people, and we get angry with them because they're not acting the way that we ultimately want them to do. Uh, we begin to become full. It, it's a demonstration that we're becoming full of pride. And as a believer, it's easy to be able to do that because the longer that you're walking with Christ, what should be happening? You should become more like Christ. Are you with me? You're more like Christ, but how easy it is for us to begin to look on other people who haven't quite gotten there yet and begin to think to ourselves, how disgusting, why would they do that? Why would they live that way? Well, buddy, they're exactly who you were. Where God has to save them is the same place he graciously saved you, that he reached down there. And when we become arrogant, we're thinking somehow that where we are now in our walk with Christ is because of our own personal success, when instead it was the victory of God and the grace of God manifested to us. It's a grace. It's amazing to me how this guy can be so full of pride that unworthy as he is, he wants to exalt himself as king, he wants to exalt himself as priest, but yet we know that he's only a picture of the deliverer that is ultimately going to come, Jesus Christ, who, note this, was king, was priest, but what does he do? Instead of holding on to those rights, he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the example God has called us to follow. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and. God it's it's